We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Ad Semper Virgo Felix Semporta We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Ad Semper Virgo Welcome everybody, Steve with Cespedelli. I'm coming at you with another version, another video with our bud Aaron Singh of Tradivox, which if you guys do not know what Tradivox is, live it, learn it, love it. It's over at sophiainstitute.press.com. They're doing all these catechisms. How many, how many y'all up to now? Let's see. They just sent out volume 11, I believe, just shipped. Yeah, 11 just shipped. Volume 11. So if you haven't got one, get one. And get up to number 11 to get on the subscription thing. Uh, Aaron, welcome back. How you doing? Uh, sorry we haven't gotten in touch the last month, but life happens. But anyway, how you doing? Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming back on. Oh, yes. Great to be with you again. Uh, we're, we're doing well. As, as you say, it's uh, we were talking before the show. It, it, is, it is Lent, so <laughs> here we are. The high holy days approaching. It's a... Uh, it's a great time to talk catechisms. <clears throat> yes. We, we originally wanted this done for Aquinas, priest of St. Thomas Aquinas, the old calendar day at the beginning of the month. But again, life happens. So you're getting at the end of the month. It still works. It's still a catechism. The pages are still there. Nothing is self-destructed. So, Aaron, why a catechism by Aquinas? I didn't know he had a catechism. He had all these other writings. I guess it makes sense for him to have a catechism. It's true, and and in, in complete fairness, it's a uh, it's a compilation of of portions of his work that are usually referred to as the opuscula. The opuscula of Saint Thomas are, uh, aka the the little treatises. That's that's really kind of a direct uh, rendering of the Latin. The opuscula, the little works, the little treatises. He did as as any good priest of the time especially the mendicants. He was a, a Dominican friar, of course. And so the, the regular kind of cycles of preaching often uh, featured a, a systematic presentation of the truths of the faith at, at some point in the year. So, you know, we're oftentimes, especially the last several centuries, we've kind of grown accustomed to uh, sermons, usually taking the form of homilies during mass or just before or just after mass. And, and typically they're kind of informed by 
uh, the propers of the day. So the, the proper gospel of the day, you know, it's a commentary on the gospel, um, potentially also drawing in the, maybe the epistle or, or some of the other proper prayers. And that's usually the format we're kind of accustomed to now in terms of homilies. But <clears throat> uh, occasionally you will have a priest that will do catechetical sermon cycles. So they're kind of, sometimes you'll have a, a mini series, you know, oh, and this is uh, often happens in uh, some of the penitential seasons. So Advent or Lent, like we are now where, okay, for the season of Lent, you know, the homilies will be on the truths of the faith, just kind of a walk through. Uh, the creed, let's say, or or a walk through the commandments, uh, things of this nature are also common. <clears throat> and so, uh, in, in fact, I, I've also heard tell that the the parish mission is often kind of an occasion for this, where there'll be outside of mass, you know, a parish will host a, let's say, a four or eight session, you know, kind of presentation where a priest will give extended sermons or extended instructions on uh, choose the faith <clears throat> and then open that out to the parish as well as you know folks come in you know come into the parish if you're in the area and, and we're going to have this kind of a presentation so in any case the opuscula of saint thomas aquinas are really a representation of that kind of work where it's it's thomas uh dialing down a little bit in terms of the, the high academic language you know which a lot of us know and love him for um and, and the opuscula are really a, a kind of a, a gathering of several of writings of his. Um, and many of those are in the form of kind of pastoral uh, preaching homily type addresses. And so his catechism, <clears throat> as it uh, came to be known, was kind of a, a compilation of opuscula arranged around the truths of the faith, a systematic presentation of the truths of the faith um, in, in the form of a catechism. So that, that, is, that is one of the catechisms found in volume six of the Tradivox series, which is we kind of lovingly refer to as the medieval volumes. This is, these are the earliest uh, catechisms that we are printing in physical copy uh, in the Tradivox series are all found in volume six. Hey, who, just in case anybody's looking at the screen going, uh, Pechen, Pagula, uh, who are the other two? So if someone's looking at those two names going, who are these guys? What can you say to them? Because I, I looked at it going, wow, that's, uh, you know, if you're thinking about there was problems today in the priesthood, and don't think that it was sunshine and unicorns and dancing bunnies all over the place back in the medieval days, because these catechisms were written for priests. That's right, yes. So uh, Pechem is, is one. Um also variously pronounced as Peckham. It's you're you're in you're in good company with either these a lot of these <laughs> names, well and I mean in this period it's also folks that uh, e even in their own area would be referred to variously. You know their names would be variously pronounced. So we're this is this is predating the days of uh, first name last name and very rigorous enforcement of the pronunciation of both. So um, but we'll say we'll say Peckham. Uh, just, just to use. I this. wish I had the clip of that one. Hey, you, hey, I bet. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so not, not exactly there. We, we're looking at uh, Canterbury in the 1200s, right? So, yes, um, the Archbishop uh, of Canterbury, John, John Petcham, who 
uh, is a rather remarkable figure. Uh, well, so so to point out on on the cover, as you say, we have Aquinas, uh, Petchum, and and Pegula, uh, William of Pegula. Uh, the there are more than those three texts in volume six, but these are kind of the the major names uh, uh, of of the texts that are in this volume. So so Petchum, since you mentioned him, so he's the author of the Ignorantia Sacerdotum, uh, uh, that is to say, the ignorance of priests. Okay, back back then, you you had a lot of really you know uh, uh, inviting, welcoming, uh, very accompanying kind of uh, titles like that uh, in the at that time. Um, the ignorance of priests, Ignorantia Sacerdotum. Most tracts of that time uh, took their name from just the opening words. You know, they they seldom did they have kind of a a title and then you know, the governing content, uh, oftentimes the medieval days, you would just, a, a book or a work would be known by, you know, the beginning words of, of that actual, of the actual text, which is still the case uh, for uh, magisterial documents, papal documents, uh, oftentimes conciliar documents, they, they'll just take their words from like the first sentence, let's say in Latin uh, of that document. And so the, uh, so the Ignorantia uh, by Archbishop, John Petchum, he is a, a Franciscan friar uh, in, in the relatively early days of the Franciscan order. Uh, again, he's, we're talking 1200s here. And he is in, the, uh, in 1281, <clears throat> he convokes the, uh, the Provincial Council of Lambeth uh, by the same name. It's rather unfortunate, but many people, when they hear Lambeth, they think, uh, Lambeth of 1930, in which the Anglicans first uh, submitted, you know, use of of artificial contraceptives and some, uh, you know, some certain limited uses. But uh, anyway, not associated. So same city, same <laughs> same area, but this is uh, several centuries before even the word Anglican was ever heard. So, um, so the Provincial Council of Lambeth, uh, Archbishop Petchum, is is really focused at uh, directing kind of his reforming uh, zeal that he brings really as a Franciscan to this really prominent post, which is uh, the Canterbury, the See of Canterbury, um, which is at that time uh, the really the most significant or, or one of the most significant politically uh, in England. And uh, so John Petchum is, finds himself in this brilliant position really to affect uh, some some needed reform has to be said some some needed reforms at the level of the priests uh, at the level of uh, lay instruction as well there's we don't have this kind of you know protestant myth of uh, the, the ignorant superstitious masses that's i think we've we've talked about that a couple of times on the on the show in the past where you know, centuries later, you have kind of this this myth, really again propagated, invented, and propagated by uh, Protestants largely, as as part of the kind of confessional wars rhetoric, where uh, you know Catholics they're just these masses of people that are ignorant and superstitious, you know, and they need to be kind of delivered from this uh, this this false system uh, where they're kind of held down and and they uh, you know they stifle the Holy Ghost and just all of these things. Uh, because they're in the chains of this superstitious Catholic uh, doctrinal and and uh, 
and, and worship uh, system. Uh, and, and of course, history gives the lie to that, that notion. I mean, the, the uh, provincial uh, council of Lambeth is one of those uh, great examples. So this, again, this is 400, uh, well, it's, it's uh, a several hundred, let's see, 1281 to 15. So you're talking about uh, two, two uh, going on 300 years before Luther is born. <laughs> you, you're having uh, examples like this where a zealous archbishop finds himself in a position of uh, calling for greater attention to, you know, integrity of faith and morals. Uh, this is also not long after the, uh, the, the great um, council itself, uh, the, the uh, universal council. I'm trying to see if I've got mention of that, but in, in 1215, I don't think we put that in here, but we must have put it in here somewhere. But in any event, uh, the fourth Lateran is one of these uh, kind of great doctrines. Oh, yeah, it is. It's early in the, uh, we mentioned that in the preface. So in the, in the preface of each of these volumes, we try to give, you know, paint the picture a little bit where, where each of these catechisms comes from. Uh, and we do mention that in here. So the, the fourth Lateran Council, 1215, has a, a lot of attention on many of the canons of that council are focused on uh, the first, the Easter duty, as it came to be called, you know, that, that the lay faithful should be uh, attending and in fact are bound to uh, attend Holy Mass every Sunday and Holy Day of Obligation, but also that they should be receiving the Blessed Sacrament. You know, now we have like that just blows our minds. Like, why would you even go to Mass and not receive Holy Communion? Well, it was because Mass wasn't principally for receiving Holy Communion. Uh, principally, Mass is for the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice. Um, so it's... You mean it's, it's not about you? It's, it's, right. it's not about you, uh, or, or even necessarily uh, uh, you and your sacramental uh, life, your, your reception of the sacrament. Not in any way to, to denigrate, you know, obviously receiving our Lord in Holy Communion, but um, because that's, of course, that's the most profound uh, you know, physical and spiritual act that, that we can carry out. That's also, that's also why uh, it, was, it was a lot less frequently carried out by uh, the laity former times, was that, of course, they would go to Holy Mass uh, frequently, but they'd receive the Blessed Sacrament considerably less frequently. Um, again, because Mass was for uh, the worship and adoration of God. Uh, and then secondarily, you know, we would, we would, uh, see that as a, as a place and time to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, which is this profoundly holy act. Uh, I was thinking, reading the Desert Fathers, you read those guys going, how did they do, how did they go to, they didn't go to Mass every day. They, they were in the, they went, they went to Mass on Saturday and Sundays, and they were in their cell for the rest of the week, focused on heavenly things and trying to become more virtuous. Because yeah, when you bring that up, maybe think about that going, yeah, we think about everyone in the past, you know, even where well, you can even get into Jansenism, not, the, not that we're in this time, but those guys, I mean, there's all kinds of times in the history of the church where you didn't have it every day. We didn't go every day. Yes, I mean, it, it, it has to be said, the, the, um, the frequency question is, is a very recent uh, development in the church historically. Just, I, mean, I mean, the notion of uh, frequent reception. And it's, you know, that's, that's kind of a, 
you know, we could get more into that. Uh, but, yeah, sorry to sidetrack that. <laughs> yeah, bit of, a bit of a tangent. No, but uh, but I was we we got on this track because of uh, the letter and four. So when you have uh, this council, you know, part of part of their focus in in terms of discipline and the canons that were passed by that council, twelve fifteen was uh, in light of the Easter duty, we say, you know, we, we, all, the, all of the faithful are bound at least annually to be, you know, confessed of their sins and then to receive uh, the blessed sacrament, preferably in Eastertide. And so uh, the, the preparation for that work also in the canons was uh, sound moral and theological instruction, you know, so, so a, as a way of preparing for confession which is as a which is to prepare for you know reception of of holy communion at easter you have uh this necessity to revisit the truths of the faith and the commandments of god and the church uh and and that is what really explodes kind of the genre of catechisms so when most people say hey, when did catechisms get started i mean we can we can point to the first millennium even uh, and we've talked about that before. It's it really is a matter of well, what do you define as catechism? Because yeah. you know, in Acts chapter two, you've got Saint Peter gives a pretty good catechism. You know, it's a short, uh, instructive on you know the the uh, a pocketbook size order. You know, necessity of faith in Christ, the baptism. You know, all these things. And so, uh, but but most scholars would say that the genre as we know it today really begins in the wake of. Uh, the Fourth Lateran Council, twelve fifteen. So, and and again, the reason for that is the council gives this this uh, explicit, you know, requirement of instruction in the truths of the faith uh, and and the moral life as a way of preparing folks for confession to prepare them for reception of the Easter uh, communion. And so, so that's really what what begins this uh, more frequent. Let's put it this way: a more frequent uh, appearance of texts that are designed usually for priests, but they're designed to be these kind of handbooks or, or manuals for, uh, for confessing the, their, their parishioners is to say, you know, here's, here's a, a little kind of play by play on, you know, the truths of the faith largely arranged by the, um, the truths in the creed, you know, presented in the order that the creed presents them and, and then the commandments. And then sometimes you'd have, even longer uh, commentaries on penances that, that they become known as really this whole, this whole subgenre of uh, the confessional manuals, which are, you know, very, in some cases, very detailed. You know, if somebody confesses X, that's a sin against commandment Y, and that calls for penances A, B, C, D, you know, depending on if they're a man or a woman, if they're married or not, you know, so, so you have this, this, um, this genre really of catechisms begins in the wake of that council. So all, all the way then to Archbishop uh, Petcham, who then kind of takes, you know, the guidance of uh, Lateran IV, which is, is still uh, standing, and then convenes a, a local council uh, or uh, uh, we, we call them synods, you know, often now that can be of various, you know, shape and size depending. And uh, the, the provincial council of Lambeth, 1281, that's where, uh, Petcham both kind of uh, passes, he, he is presiding there, uh, he passes additional uh, re requirements you know, for the clergy of his diocese regarding instruction in the truths of the faith, 
Uh, and then as kind of part and parcel of that, he gives one as well. So, so part of the proceedings of that council is a, a mini catechism by uh, Archbishop Petcham. That is the text that, that is one of the texts that is here in volume six is the work of uh, Petcham from the, uh, from the larger text of Ignorantia Sacerdotum. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a little walkthrough. We, we put this whole section, we call it the medieval manuals of instruction. Um, and Petchum's is the one that opens that kind of that section in volume six here. As opening line for those scoring at home or interested, the ignorance of priests cast the people down into the ditch of error and the foolishness and lack of learning of clerics whom the decrees of canon law ordered to teach the sons of the faithful is all the worse when it leads to the error instead of knowledge. That's a, sorry, a little opener. Again, I'm not, anybody sitting in here, I'm not talking about, you know, Father Smith down the street in, you know, 2023. We're talking about this time of age. There was this this going on. And was this was before uh, seminaries, right? I mean, Charles Borromeo was until later. Yes, you know, none of it is as systematized, of course, as, uh, as it becomes under uh, Borromeo and certainly after Trent. I mean, Trent is, that's one of the, one of the major focuses of, of that council is to, uh, of course, you, you have seminaries, you have, you know, uh, houses of learning. Many times they'd be connected to uh, cathedrals um, where, where the local bishop himself is, is uh, enthroned. So you would have systematic preparations for the priesthood uh but it yes you're right it doesn't reach kind of near the degree of uh systematization with regard to the the actual um the, the program that that isn't nearly as refined or focused or most importantly required uh as it becomes after in in and after uh the council of trent which is you know two plus centuries after uh this little catechism is is written um, but when you, you read that first line and I, I this is so pertinent uh, to revisit. So when, when the archbishop says, you know, the ignorance of priests le leading to, you know, harm of the faithful. And he says, it's all the worse when it leads to error instead of knowledge. And this, this is so profound. I feel right. Is we're saying, look, as a priest, you're, you're already there in a role of, uh, teaching regardless of, of how accurately you know, you're teaching uh, the truths of the faith. And so it's, so it's one thing to have uh, folks who may just be ignorant of the truths of the faith. He's saying it, it, but your ignorance as a priest, you know, it may lead to error instead of knowledge. So not just that you beget ignorance rather than knowledge, but, but that you may beget error by, by, um, by your ignorance, you know? And so, so this is one of the uh, most, I think, salient points in his whole uh, treatise here. When he, he goes through uh, articles of the creed, you know, mentions this. He mentions uh, the, the charity and goes through the deadly sins, um, the virtues, the sacraments. Right. So it's uh, yeah, it, it also kind of flies in the face of I, I still hear this from time to time where folks think that like Martin Luther invented the catechism. Like he invented the genre, which I don't know where that comes from exactly, but uh, but so here you got a text you know, several centuries before Luther is born, uh, and it's a systematic presentation of the truths of the faith, you know, written by an archbishop uh, for his priests in order to teach the faithful. I mean, so you can't get much clearer than this. He saw a problem and 
came up with a little solution. I mean, basically, it really says that once every quarter, once in every quarter or on one or several solemn days, each priest in charge of a parish should personally explain or have someone else explain to the people in their mother tongue without any fanciful woven subtleties, the 14 articles of faith, 10 commandments, two precepts of the gospel, seven works of mercy, seven capital sins that are fruit, seven principal virtues, and the seven grace given sacraments. Now, as you know, keep it simple in a sense. And um, more to it in the common tongue. I mean, it's, it's really worth pointing this out as well. You know, the, again, to that myth of the ignorant, uh, superstitious masses of Catholics in, in the uh, medieval period. Um, why even have this mention of in their mother tongue? You know, if, if it were not, in fact, a, a focus of the, the, uh, the, the disciples of the Lord, right, to know the truths of the faith, uh, to, to grasp those matters essential for salvation, and to assent to them with the intellect and the will. I mean, this is part of uh, the, the great work of all, of all of those descending from the apostles is to say, look, you know, the, we, we have been called, as, as uh, you know, Peter kind of mentions even in Acts of the Apostles, you know, post-descent of the Holy Ghost, that we are witnesses of these things. You know, that's, that's the role of the bishop, and then by extension, his priest, is to be, to be witnesses to these truths that God has revealed, uh, and which, much, which must be held uh, by intellect and will in order to be saved. So, so here you have an archbishop taking his role very seriously, is really, really what it amounts to, um, saying that, look, you know, priests are, are on the line, or they're, they're, uh, they're on the hook for this, because I'm on the hook for this, yeah. like the archbishop. Of I'll be judged for these guys. <laughs> He's right. And I, I mean, his, his, uh, his whole text is, uh, of course, it's just fascinating read. I mean, you know, so there are places in any of these uh, these these little medieval catechisms where uh, you know they they have um, limited relevance, let's say you know so they so they will talk about maybe social situations that don't pertain anymore. You know, Scott Ales is one of these, the Scott Ale, you know the the infamous Scott Ale of the of the um, late thirteenth century, uh, and we just kind of blink and, and scratch our heads. Well, this was when you have you know, a local. Uh, I mean, the most common, these would be manorial lords. Uh, I'm trying to think how we would even transcribe that to today or transpose it rather. <laughs> that would be like, that would be like um, the governor or the mayor. That would be more, more like, uh, you know, so your local mayor has a mandatory party uh, and, and everybody's expected to be there, you know, required to be there. And you have to drink the beer that the mayor, uh, provides you know for it and you <laughs> and you and but it was always cash bar you, you'd have to pay it was, a, it was a cash bar so you had to come and you, <laughs> you had to drink uh and and you'd have to pay to, you had to, to pay for it pay to play yeah and so, so okay so things like that you know maybe don't happen anymore uh but on the other hand <laughs> you know, the way that these these medieval catechisms present the content is just it's remarkable. It is so apropos. I, I, so I can't, let me pull just one because I, this is one of my favorites. Um, when he talks about here we are in Lent, right? We're mortifying our appetites. <clears throat> here we are passion tied. It's, it's, uh, it should be, that should be increasing. 
this week and especially next. But uh, the Archbishop section on the seven deadly sins when he's talking about uh, gluttony. And this is this is uh, a fascinating and applicable. So you, you forgive me if I read a bit. Go for uh, it. So Pe uh, Archbishop Petchum, his excellency says, gluttony is the immoderate love of the pleasures of sense, of taste through eating and drinking. There, there are varieties of the sin. First, one can sin according to interval, eating too early or lingering too long, or when the eating is too hasty. <laughs> Second, one can sin through the quality when one craves sumptuous food, that is food over rich. Third, one sins in quantity when one eats or drinks over much. This is the commonest type. It is this surfeit of food and drink which aggravates the heart, impedes exterior and interior senses, and injures the bodily health. Fourth, one can sin an over-eager, voracious quality of one's eating. Finally, and this I think is, is rather apropos for our own time, doesn't get commented on enough. It says, finally, one can sin in the over-meticulous and exquisite preparation of food. These five circumstances for gluttony are summarized in the verse, too hastily, too sumptuously, too much, too ardently, too meticulously. <laughs> so it's pretty handy. And the medievals had tons of these, these right. little, little mnemonic devices and little short verses. And they, you know, they just knew their faith inside and out. And oftentimes it, it gave rise to these kind of popular expressions like this. The, the little verse, too hasty, too sumptuously, too much, too ardently, too meticulously. Uh, but but I love it. He, you know, he's pointing out these different aspects of this particular sin. And it's something, again, in Lent uh, is really worth dwelling upon is that gluttony is not just a matter of quantity, which is usually how it, it's it's portrayed, I feel, is uh, is eating over much. And, and certainly that is a uh, an issue. But here when he's talking about the manner in which it's prepared, I mean, golly, if we needed a reminder uh, in this country, it would be. I think in more in that vein, right? Where we, we can have, we can have any kind of food from any, you know, any, any culture, any, uh, uh, you know, ethnic foods of, of any kind and prepared most sumptuously. I mean, we eat better than most Kings ever did, um, in history. And, uh, and this is one of the things that we ought really be mortifying in terms of our, our appetites, certainly for Lent, but, uh, uh, but but even you know bearing that in mind with regard to the sin of gluttony is that are we are we inordinately attached to the the sumptuousness of of the food? Um, but so these are the kinds of you know very practical things, very clear, and as you say, you know just keeping it simple. That was that was the focus for uh, Archbishop. And you read just the the gluttony chapter. The, the first chapter before that that has the rest of the deadly sins. I mean, he was very precise and. Right to the point. Didn't miss, didn't mix up words or anything like that. I mean, very simple. But you got what he was under. He was trying to teach. He, you can understand it like an educate, like an elementary level, but not written for. He didn't dumb it down. You know, you know what I'm trying to say. He didn't dumb it down, but it's not for the genius to have to figure it out what he's trying to say. That's right, and it's uh, really I think readers would be pleased to find that in Aquinas as well. So. Yeah. We kind of opened with mentioning his his catechism, which makes up the bulk of volume six is the Aquinas uh, catechism. But but here he is. He's very much more in that mode of, you know, uh, instructions that would take the form of 
uh, popular preaching. You know, be, these would be the kind of things delivered in a town square, you know, by uh, the, the good the good doctor himself, as well as uh, you know any any priest that could take these up and have you know really a, a, a concise, to the point, very clear exposition on the truths of the faith themselves as presented in the order uh, of the creed, the apostles creed, you know, specifically, and then, um, and then the commandments and the sacrament, you know, that's, that's the typical, the typical structure. And speaking of the creed, we also have, you know, the, the first one, which is really a kind of a catechism in itself uh, is the Athanasian creed. So some, this is one, Oh, I just wish we, we had more exposure to this. The Athanasian creed also called the quicum quae volt, um, this is, uh, one of the lesser known, sadly today, uh, but one of the four great creeds of, of, uh, of, of the Catholic faith is the Athanasian creed. And so we put a, an English, uh, uh, really one of the better, I mean, it's, it's the best as, as far as I can divine. It's, uh, the, the best English translation of the Athanasian creed is really what opens volume six. Whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. This is a uh, just a, a, a powerhouse of a creed. If anyone is not familiar with or, or wants to have uh, really the best English rendering of it, we, we have that uh, as well here in volume six. This my my own family. We uh, Trinity Sunday. We do a, a procession around our our property, and we do a, a loud uh, public recitation of the Quicum Quivolt. Uh, you, you need to do that, and then do the anathema sit uh, the anathema chant afterwards. Doesn't Yes. We mentioned that Thomas, uh, you can't swing a dead cat without a scripture quote, uh, quote in his uh, catechism. It's either, as far as what, 90% uh, scripture, uh, Aquinas, uh, Augustine, and Aristotle. That's pretty much the meat and potatoes of that. Yes, gobs and gobs of scripture, especially, as you mentioned. He's, uh, and, and really, that's the style of the period is in... Of course, Aquinas is one of, of many who have scripture just committed to memory, you know, chapter, chapter verse before really there were chapters or verses. But uh, but, he, you know, he has the text in, in mind, in his mind. And so most of the, uh, the, the common preaching, really the best of it, the kinds of uh, doctors who folks would turn out to see, you know, because because back then this was this was solid public entertainment as well as you'd have a good preacher in town um, and he'd be giving a disputation, you know, on some point of doctrine or uh, just, just a, a public exhortations, you know, with regard to certain matters of faith and morals. And so folks would just come, they would just come, you know, maybe pack a picnic lunch and uh, show up in the town square and just, and just hear father go to town. And of course uh, uh, the, the great uh, Thomas Aquinas was, was regularly host to uh, crowds in that regard. And so the, so the Obus Scula, many of those are the kinds of uh, public addresses or sermons that he gave, collections of that. And this, again, his catechism is 
a systematic presentation of the truths of the faith, a la Aquinas, much of which is just scriptural. And, and in many cases, in fact, it, it takes, it, it takes, uh, uh, oh, what's that work? Um, oh, the Catena, the Catena Aurea is like one of these, you know, his, this exhaustive kind of commentary on scripture. But the commentary is just, is just uh, a, a series of quotes from earlier you know, church fathers and in some cases, you know, even uh, uh, non-Catholic authors, pagan authors. But it's just this barrage of quotations, you know, in the form of, I mean, he strings them together as this huge commentary on every verse of the Gospels. Uh, but it's all by way of, you know, other other people's stuff, <laughs> which he's totally familiar with. So so much of his uh, his his preaching is in that same mode, but drawing on the, you know, predominantly drawing on the text of Scripture. Um, I guess just because people probably in modern times can't fathom this. This is a time, obviously, when there's no television, there's no air conditioning, you're outside or if you lived in a city at a city center or city you know uh, section like i don't know if you have a small city you might have the a little roundabout and maybe the town steep steeple or you have something out there that everybody kind of congregated the marketplace was there everyone was there so if a preacher got up and preached he had an audience already there it wasn't like someone put a flocking note up in a text and said hey come at 7 30 you know St. Th Father Thomas Aquinas is going to do a, le a lesson today. No, they were already there. They knew he was there. And he was probably going to go for a majority of the morning, maybe eat lunch afterwards, and then maybe again, right? This was There was nothing else for the people to do besides – that's why they understood Scripture. They they read because that. what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> the more disposable uh, reading yeah, time. You weren't distracted by 38,000 other things or, you know – videos or anything like that that's very true and of course much more uh, locally based you know there, there wasn't as much uh, i was just talking to somebody about this recently that there wasn't as much coming and going yeah there's just so much coming and going in our lives today uh, just as a as a people as a society and um yes as you say there was there was uh, considerably less and, and almost none of that when you have a, a predominantly agrarian uh, society for one you know, so they're they're rooted in the land and the, the seasons the, the cycles of uh, of birth and death already written into nature by our lord and then to add to that you have a much more naturally we might say uh, meditative mindset you know they're, they're they're able to you know take these these exhortations, these preachings, these teachings, the regular sacramental life of the parish, which they could walk to, uh, you know, and, and that would form kind of the backdrop that would form the, now I have this content to kind of mull over throughout the day rather than, yeah, as you say, a, a little, a little pocket sized source of constant distraction. Um, so that to ensure that you don't meditate upon anything ever. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really uh, where we find it. Even you brought up, they weren't going anywhere. They didn't have a uh, uh, the Hummer horse uh, in the in their backyard or in their driveway. They, if they were even shopping, they, they could probably hear the this the uh, the lecture going on wherever they were going in the in the town area. I mean, they again they didn't have microphones, so they had this uh, Chrysostom. They, I remember somebody talked about that. How did he preach in that gigantic building that they had, Hagia Sophia? 
how did he talk loudly? He and the and the echoes would boom off the walls. So they probably talked a little bit louder than the average person that just talks on the side of the streets these days. Yeah, not to mention having the help of the miraculous. I mean, that's yeah, uh, like like um, who we just recently had uh, Vincent Ferrer. Uh, there, there are many accounts of saints who would be preaching sometimes in open, you know, public spaces and everyone just heard them just fine. And it wasn't like you had, you know, the telephone game going on. People weren't passing back. Oh, he just said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it gets to the people in the back row. I mean, you'd have assembled crowds of, of thousands, you know, many thousands. Of course, our Lord's public life is, is the same. Uh, you know, preaching to crowds of thousands in the open air, you can't shout loud enough to be heard by, uh, by, by crowds of thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands. Um, and yeah, so, so in many cases, you had the, uh, the, the miraculous assistance of whether it's angels, you know, helping to propagate sound waves or, you know, just directly infusing, uh, you know, knowledge into the hearers. There's, but there are many occasions where folks testify, public testimony, uh, where, they, where they say, well, yeah, I was, I was way back you know, in the, in the nosebleeds, I heard him just fine. I was, I was right. Or I heard him in my language. I mean, you know, the gift of tongues, of course, we're, we're, we hear that every Pentecost. Um, but that, that was, that was, it's not like that was the last time that ever happened. Um, I, again, the I original AI translator. Yeah. Or, or even in councils, like church councils. I think, I think, uh, who was it? I was just recently reading. There was another saint who, anyways, he, he was, uh, he was called to present, uh, a position paper or something at a on the floor of a of a, um, a synod. I don't think it was a general council. I think it was a regional synod. But and it says you know many that that many of those assembled, you know, the fathers assembled, heard him in their native tongue. You know, and we're like, wow, I didn't know you knew uh, whatever the language happened to be. And yeah, he didn't. He just just uh, just spoke in tongues. So that's handy. Speaking of tongues, this ain't speaking of tongues. Who is William of Pagula? the third and final of the trifecta in this book well i don't get the uh what's the what's the tone connection we got <laughs> there was no, no tone connection no <laughs> oh, it's good it's good so yeah he he um there are we should point out a uh, an intervening there there is a prior to the work of pagula there is an anonymous text uh circa the year 1300 uh the quinque verba this is the also called the uh, the five words the quinque verba um this is uh this one is needed it gives the example of the kind of thing that often was printed and hung up in public uh gathering places like the town square so you mentioned kind of you know often in in medieval life especially the the square, the town square kind of formed the center of uh, the social life as, as well as the, uh, the, uh, the commercial life, you know, the, the buying and selling of goods uh, and services, uh, the, the church, you know, the, the center of worship was often on the square or very close to it. And so in those times, one of the ways in which uh, the, the lettered folk could be catechized uh, the most common, of course, is in the context of preaching, just just hearing and retaining uh, what's what's taught orally. But also, um, you would have these these tracts that would be hung up. They they'd be uh, printed at some cost, at some expense, uh, oftentimes by 
lay people or um, uh, all of the parishioners would kind of go in on a, a printing. Because again, in this time, you're not talking about paper or mechanized print. You're talking about vellum. You're talking about hiring out a scribe or uh, religious houses, you know, that would, that would do this kind of work. And so they would have a, a, um, a large sheet, you know, a large uh, vellum sheet of instructions on the truths of the faith, very concise, uh, again, very systematic. And then that would be something posted in, uh, say, the town square um, or within, you know, the village church uh, so that you know, folks could, could come and, and consult it at their leisure. You know, it's very handy. You could, you could, come, you could come read, you could come read things uh, about the faith. So, uh, so one of those before looking at Pergula's is this uh, quinque verba, the five words, which is really, um, it, it, is, it is anonymously composed. It's the, you know, the actual, the author is not known, but uh, you can, you get the, both the reflecting of uh, Archbishop Petcham's text, this, this same kind of emphasis on the need for priests to be well-informed. You know, it, it begins with, for instance, <laughs> this line, in an effort to remedy, so this is just a, a quote from the beginning of Queen Quaverba here, in an effort to remedy the ignorance of simple priests, we have gathered a few things from the teachings of our fathers to tell priests how they can preach with confidence to the people and administer more carefully the church's sacraments. Thus we have written these things in a simple and almost childlike manner, lest anyone try to excuse himself from knowing the material. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is a very pastoral approach. There was probably one guy there that was they were talking about. <laughs> you know there is that one priest somewhere who said, oh, I'm, 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 I'm caught. I'm, I'm caught now. Uh, it is. It's uh, the the um, what is that? Well, so Chaucer, one, one of the heroes, uh, or or maybe not heroes, maybe one of the better portrayed. Let's put it that way. In Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, is is the uh, the country priest, you know, the simple country priest. Um, you have in many cases simple country priests being uh, uh, better educated than the the best of the. Uh, Protestant controversialists of several centuries later. So, so we don't in any way want to hold up, uh, again, some kind of caricature of uh, these, these, the, uh, the ignorant uh, man who just happens to be in uh, ecclesiastical garb, you know, and, and uh, so that he can kind of get a free ride, you know, <laughs> out, of, out of life. Um, because again, one of the only well-portrayed characters uh, in, in Chaucer is, is the country priest. And the reason for that being that these are, uh, again, they're often, they're the most devout of men. And, um, and yet they, they have perhaps in some cases, a limited, uh, penetrating knowledge of the truths of the faith, uh, or, and this was much more, uh, uh, frequently seems to have been the case. Um, they're averse to preaching. So you, you oftentimes you have, oh, and I should point out why, right? So everyone knows the homily is of rather recent vintage, yes? <laughs> the, I mean, the idea that a parish priest would preach at mass 
is is totally foreign to to the first you know century I mean, millennium and a half of of the church's life i mean you you would have oftentimes preaching uh before holy mass or after holy mass but during is is unheard of for the first you know thousand years uh plus and then just even the idea that uh there would be preaching before after or during every mass also very unusual and a very recent um, vintage so we, we have to again we we kind of have to put ourselves you know in the in in the position of a catholic a lay catholic in the 1200s who um they uh they they have their their parish they're going to holy mass and mass of course is about worship not about didactic instruction right um and this 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 comes as kind of foreign i think to a lot of catholics today it's like well well of course, I want to go to the mass that's got the good preaching. I mean, I'm going to wait till Father So and So is on the on the on the bulletin cycle for uh, going to go to his mass, you know, because at least get a good homily out of it. Uh, well, yeah, or sit down, sit down and go. All right, here we go. <laughs> right, yeah, fire up, buckle up, here we go. It, yeah, it, and I think, um, and honestly, it's uh, that is that's totally backwards. I mean, it, at least to to adopt a. The, the traditional, uh, the classical Catholic mind with regard to mass is that, that the homily is, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's really not appropriate <laughs> for, for mass. It's, it's, uh, it's, and if anyone ever feels that way and maybe feels kind of guilty about feeling that way, you're, you're in good company. You know, you can, you can <laughs> console yourself with that. If you ever, if you ever have been entering deeply into prayer meditation on let's say um the holy sacrifice that's that's about to unfold and then all of a sudden you you gotta sit down and you gotta listen up and and here's father and here's the joke of the day or here's the here's the parish announcements or whatever and you're kind of like okay now i gotta totally just change my frame of mind well, yeah that's that's rather discordant right and that's that's for good reason because man, <laughs> preaching was it, it really formally speaking, uh, is not a part of the Holy Sacrifice, for one, and anybody would, would agree on that. You know, liturgists, liturgiologists of every stripe would agree um, that, uh, that it's not technically part of the Mass, uh, but more importantly, it, it can really be a, a distraction, an interruption, a, um, a, a way to derail uh, a, a profound entry into in the mysteries of faith that are unfolding at every uh, holy sacrifice in the mass. And so, so in any event, so that, that's, that's kind of the, the frame of mind we have to have looking at these uh, catechisms from the 1200s uh, and, uh, and 1300s is that um, these, these are uh, men and women that are, are not accustomed to hearing, you know, preaching during just smack dab right in the middle of the holy sacrifice, uh, but are certainly accustomed to preaching period, whether that's, you know, town square, whether that's before mass, after mass, other times at the church, you know, please convene at X time. Father will be there to give an instruction on the sacraments or, you know, whatever. Have, I think they have that in, uh, it was in Nigeria now. They, they, they walk long hours to get the mass. They're there all day because they have mass and then they have instruction afterwards. And then they go home in the late afternoon or evening because they're there all day doing this. It's, 
again, less distractions. You know, I've, uh, they're probably not headed home to watch the uh, Final Four uh, in the uh, the bush of uh, Nigeria. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> probably getting shot at by Muslims. That's right. Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's, uh, in fact, I was, who, who was that recently? I was looking at the, uh, oh, heresy of formlessness that, uh, Mosebach, Martin Mosebach. I think he has something about, about that, about, uh, uh, feeling like, um, feeling like the homily is an interruption and, you know, something like that, that, uh, <clears throat> that that's not, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not, uh, that's not what we're here for uh, with, with regard to the Holy Mass. But so in any case, this, uh, this is certainly the medieval mind uh, yeah. with, with regard to Mass and, and thus gives a lot more explanatory power to things like the, the Quinque Verba, which would have been posted in you know, the, the narthex of the church, in the town square, et cetera, et cetera. The other, other means of uh, educating, you know, communicating the truths of the faith uh, that are that are accessible to the faithful. And so here you have uh, the author saying, you know, we've done this in a childlike manner so that even, you know, the simple priest uh, is, is not excused, is not excused from both knowing the things and teaching them to the faithful. Because again, many priests, even who would be, you know, are, are totally uh, competent in terms of understanding the truths of the faith and assenting to them themselves, uh, educated, you know, in that regard, they may feel that they just, they just aren't, they aren't a Thomas Aquinas, you know, they, they aren't a Vincent Ferrer. They, they aren't a gifted preacher. Um, and so maybe they're a little more reticent to have, uh, regular sermon cycles. Um, and so th these are the kind of texts that are, are beginning again to appear in, with, increasing rapidity and frequency in the late 1200s, early 1300s, uh, specifically for priests to just say, look, we've, we're, we're equipping you. Here we are, we're equipping you um, so that you can do this on a regular basis. And again, after Lateran IV, uh, you're also required to do this, you know, so, so make sure that you are giving due attention to instruction of the faithful. And, and plus, I would say they probably don't have the setup you have behind you. Yes, that is very true. I mean, the they're not the, going to be able to carry all their books around. They they definitely don't have the internet. They, if they're a country poor country church, they they might have a they might have the Bible and a, maybe a few things they took. I remember Francis Sales talks about him carrying the controversies of uh, Bellarmine, his missile, and the bravery. He didn't have a backpack for everything else, and I mean, if he didn't commit the uh, memory, didn't have it on his person. That's right, and. The amount of memorization, you know, in, in every former age is, is just, I mean, it's staggering to us to, to even conceive of, you know, knowing the whole Bible, you know, having that memorized. I mean, there, you know, that, that, was, that was not altogether uncommon for amongst many of the, the you know, certainly the schoolmen. Um, and much of that is just just our, our power, you know, memorization is a muscle, memory is a muscle. And, uh, and we've, we've just dramatically lost it in the postmodern West uh, because we have tools, you know, so we have tools to remember things for us. And so we, your, your dumb phone, <laughs> the dumb phone. It's actually, it is kind of, it's kind of a, a, a funny point for all of, all of the, uh, the, uh, the good Luddites out there um, that, um, 
there's an early text. I want to, I want to say it was around Augustine's time, but I cannot for the life of me remember. I need to go look this up. I can't remember the author, but, but they were protesting to the, the invention of, of books of, of, of the book, just the, the written word in a portable form. And, and they were, they were basically saying, look, if, if we, if we make this kind of this technology, this new technology, you know, really widely available, you know, written words that are, are transportable from place to place. Uh, it, it's, it'll just be disastrous for actual knowledge because people won't need to know things. They'll just look it up. And <laughs> it will Google it. <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah, it's not a, um, it's not a foreign concern. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but the, let me see. So I, I was looking at uh, that, the five words when he goes on. Um, it's talking about the contrition. So another, this is a great uh, aspect of a lot of the early catechism, really most catechisms, I would say. Um, is that you have this attention to uh, contrition as necessary, you know, for the sacrament. Um, so it says here, this is again in the Quinque Verba, contrition is a genuine and heartfelt sorrow for sin. This must be profound because of the offense to God's grace and his covenant and on account of the pains to hell of hell to which sinners are obliged because of sin. Uh very simple, very concise, but right in there, what do we have? We have both motives uh, for true contrition. Love, right, on account of God's grace, it says that, that our sin has offended God, you know, um, and also fear, uh, you know, the fear of the pains of hell. So that that still you know, is regularly used in our typical kind of rote uh, act of contrition. We could say, offend thee, oh my God, who art all good, deserving of all my love. That's the That's the charity motive. But then also, I dread the loss of heaven. I fear the pains of hell. Well, that's that's the that's the fear motive. Both of them are legitimate motives uh, for true contrition, um, and that's that's something that I, I think is so strong in a lot of these the medieval catechisms is the necessity of uh, of true contrition for valid absolution for for valid reception of the sacrament. How many would be put back when uh, the part, the section he goes, it is important to know that every mortal sin has an automatic penance of seven years. <laughs> I mean, uh, or still penances ought to be harsher in the first years and lighter in the latter if they were to be carried out properly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's uh, they were, they were a little more uh, ardent and arduous. Uh, our, our forebears in the faith. Uh, and in that same section, we point out, he's, he mentions that uh, use of the native tongue. Yes. Um, so when penance is given, the priest should have the penitent recite the confidior word for word in his or her own language. Then the priest may continue with the Latin absolution, you know, misuriatur, et cetera. Um, the, so again, you know, we, we don't, this isn't a days of, of arcane superstitious, you know, there's Latin and, and there were these just masses of people and they just said Latin words. They didn't know what they meant. They didn't, right. There's this penetrating focus on understanding what one is doing. Um, it's just that that isn't done in the worship, in the, in the official worship of the church. 
the public worship of the church takes place in the sacred language. But for the individual, yes, you, you have this, this penetrating knowledge um, for which reason most instruction takes place in, in the native tongue, or at least uh, frequently so. And then also, again, you have your directions here to the priest to say, now, now when you confess in your native tongue, you should also say you're sorry, right, in your, in your native tongue, uh, that it, it communicates this, this, um, this, this personal ownership of the act of, of contrition. I think that's profound. You brought up the native tongue thing again, and it made me think of, you know, even secular books expected people to know some Latin. If you read the old old books of the early 20th century and prior before, there's always Latin phrases throughout books. And they expected you to know, the, the author expected everyone who's reading that to know that phrase. Sure. And I mean, it, very recently, yeah. right, to, that, yeah. to that end is, you know, any, any, the sign of the educated person, even, even a few generations ago was, yeah. oh, you said, you know, you, of course, you know, Latin or, or even today, I mean, a, a modern corollary is, is, it is living languages, but it's, it's often multiple, right? Is that, um, oh, you go to Europe and somebody addresses you in English. Well, you know that that's not their first language, you know, it's, uh, or, or you try the embarrassing thing of, you know, addressing them in their language. It's, it's always happens like in Germany, you know, Germany or France, or, you know, you go and you, you try to, you know, ah, and they say, oh, you know, they, they just, they kind of nod and smile, then they address you in, in English, you know. <laughs> they do their version of bless his heart. <laughs> That's right, right. But uh, yeah, so it is, it's, it's uh, the vernacular appears frequently. Uh, in in the instruction of the faithful, uh, well over a uh, thousand years ago and more. Um, but to get to the last, you mentioned Pagula is so. This is the work Oculus Sacerdotis. Um, it is a it is a much larger work. William of Pagula, who's who's one of these, he's a little better known um, medieval uh, theologian. And he, so he has this larger work, the, the Oculus Sacerdotis, the, the priest, the eye of the priest, the Oculus Sacerdotis. Um, in the Middle Ages, the eye was, that is to say, you, you know, your, your physical eyeball, the eyeball in the body, the eye was uh, a common kind of uh, narrative device, uh, 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 metaphorical for knowledge it was it was both you know how one how one came to learn a thing uh and then kind of possessed knowledge of a thing the idea being that you know it, it uh, it's entered by way of the eye and then uh, conversely it uh actually this is also expressed by our lord when he, he talks in the parable he talks about um going into heaven uh with with the eyes of the body he says you know if the eye is not sound uh, then, then the whole body will be in darkness. That that idea. Um, this is is carried over for you know the next thousand years plus. It's this the same kind of conception of the eye. This so so knowledge comes in, and then um, I the the way that I continue to kind of perceive the world is also shaped by uh, the either the truth or falsity. So the the eye is sound or the eye is is corrupt. And that's, that's the theme of this work by William Pagula, uh, the Oculus Sacerdotis. 
It's composed uh, early 1300s, they say around 1320. Uh, we've got a really cool scan in here from the a, a 1400s copy of it with the, the illuminated you know manuscript look. Um, yeah, I saw that going. How did they translate from that? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. This, this, or any of the Gothic. If people are familiar with like the old books of chant and things, you know, the Gothic minuscule, where the not only not only are they rather odd looking letters, but they're tiny and they're yeah. all squished together. You know? That's uh, what talking about. That's right. <clears throat> Uh, so he says, uh, and th this is how he launches out. So in this, so women, so this is a section from that larger work, Oculus Sacerdotis, and it's kind of the, it's the catechism section. It's like a, this is really a larger, it's a pastoral manual really is what it is. So it has instructions, uh, truths of the faith and the moral life, um, but also just how to, how to be a good priest. I mean, you could really retitle this whole thing, um, and this section, how it begins, I, I just think it's so powerful. So I'll read. So he says, <clears throat> uh, there, there are many priests in name. That's how, how he begins. It's so, so intense. There are many priests in name. Since nothing in this life, especially these times, is easier, more agreeable, or more acceptable to men than to perform the office of bishop or priest. But in the sight of God, nothing is more wretched sadder and damnable if it's done indifferently and for adulation yeah, that that is to say for for the praise of men so then it begins so there are few priests indeed since nothing in this life especially these times is harder more burdensome or perilous than the office of bishop or priest but nothing is holier in the sight of god if one soldiers on and does his duty the way that Christ commands. Boom. I just, that is just so, so powerful. I, I, and the whole, the whole thing reads like that, you know, is that, but, but this, this contrast between, um, you know, again, because in the middle ages, yeah, you, you want an easy life. In many cases, you, you became a clergyman. That was, uh, that was a, a clear and present danger. And yet, uh, to be to be a good one, as it were, you know, to be a holy one, as as William points out, nothing is holier, but nothing is more burdensome, harder, or perilous than the office of, of bishop or priest. So he he takes it very seriously, and then his the, the catechism here goes on, uh, and you get that same kind of gravity throughout the text of his catechism. Yeah, he goes. It's uh, I mean, he quotes Ambrose, Augustine, Hugh of Saint Victor. I mean, uh, yeah, he he probably gets he hammers that point away pretty well. Uh, like he said, a solid start on that. Yeah, and he goes in baptism, the duties of parents and godparents. Something a lot of people today don't think of. Uh, yes, he he doesn't uh, he doesn't spare them as well from that same kind of gravity in that section, talking about like parents and godparents are also. Uh, you know, they're, they're bound before God to, to uh, stand as surety you know, for those that are, are placed in their care. Um, let me see. I'm trying to find where that section is. He talks about the, uh, well, I mean, it's, try to keep it very G rated, but he has a section on un, unnatural acts, let's say, um, which is, is, uh, 
yeah, marriage and purity. Let's put it that way. There's the, that's the section heading is on marriage and purity. And there is a, a, a portion here that I think at least in part warrants some, uh, some relating where he says uh, he, he gives very discreet directions for the priest. So he says a priest should not tell everyone the ways that people can sin against nature. So he's talking about, you know, acts of impurity outside of, uh, the, uh, the, the natural intercourse with one's spouse, let's say. Uh, but he goes on, he says, as the bishop's penitentiaries know well enough, these days there are many people who believe that in many cases, a sin against nature is not really a sin, which is a deplorable state of affairs. <laughs> Boy, it's... It's almost it's almost contemporary, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound almost contemporary? Um, How about the slap in the face at the end? And go, finally, a parish priest should announce frequently on Sundays and other solemn feast days during the celebration of Mass the articles of general excommunication issued at the Council of Oxford and the Council of Landon. It's like you're sitting there going, "Oh, by the way, <laughs> we're we're due for a repetition of the uh, <laughs> the excommunicable offenses." Yeah, that that was a. Uh, just standard fare. Um, Did they call that today is excommunication Sunday? Today you're going to learn learn what you can do to get out. I uh, there's another great. I think it's in this one. Oh yes. So when we were talking earlier about uh, you know the public the worship of the church being uh, being ordered to you know the the praise and glorification of God uh, and uh, and not per se, the reception of our Lord's uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament. And there's a section in here that's, that's also typical of, of the medieval mind, but it's, it's worth putting out, out there uh, on the section on the Eucharist in this catechism. He says, the first about how it ought to be received, you know, with reverence, he said, when the sacrament is in the mouth, it should not be crushed too much with their teeth, but gently chew it, swallowing completely so that no particles are trapped and remain there, then parishioners should be urged to look freely and frequently upon the body of Christ. Sign about um, adoration, both uh, during Holy Mass and outside of the context of, of Mass. Uh, the priest should announce to his parishioners, whoever yearns to see the body of Christ will merit the following, according to St. Augustine in City of God. So before we go to his, his uh, quote from Augustine, whoever yearns to see the body of Christ, this is something that's, that's fascinating about even medieval uh, churches, the architecture, because you'll go and you'll see uh, the um, chantry screens or the chancel screens, uh, the, the rude screens, they're sometimes called these, these devices where even in the Roman rite, you had the, the, uh, the, um, the obscuring of the sanctuary often from the general view. And of course our, our Byzantine friends, all of our, our uh, Eastern Rite Catholics would be familiar with this, but the idea that during the canon, especially you have uh, some additional layer of, of veiling introduced um, between, you know, those who are in the body of the church and uh, the ministers in the sanctuary. And even architecturally, this can be seen, uh, I'm thinking especially of, of churches in England where 
there there would be little holes, little like pilot holes drilled into uh, certain certain places in the uh, the screen. These these physical, sometimes wood, you know, heavier uh, construction barriers. Oftentimes in the Roman Rite, it was a curtain. Um, that's something uh, a little more, you know, pushable, movable, and so on. But but in some cases, you know, this, these wooden screens, it would kind of somewhat obstruct, you know, the view of the sanctuary. And uh, and in many cases, there'd be these little holes in them because the faithful would come up and they'd come, you know, kneeling uh, and look, just to look. And you get this sense uh, here in this catechism. It's, that's what it's mentioning. It says, whoever yearns to see the body of Christ, because the, the notion here, right, again, as we'll see from Augustine in the early church, is that the proper object of the eye, that, you know, we're talking about the eye being sound, then, then the, the whole body will be light, is the proper object of the eye is God. You know, that, that we are made to look upon God. And so that those who yearn to see even the body of Christ, this, this, this sacramental and true representation. The, the very presence of Christ in the sanctuary, that those who yearn to look on, just to see, just to look upon uh, the body of Christ, will merit, again, back to uh, William of Pagula here, will merit the following, according to St. Augustine. He who sees it will get whatever food he needs. On that day, his idle words will be forgiven, his unwitting oaths canceled. On that day, he will not lose his sight. On that day, he will not meet a sudden death. On that day, he will not grow older while he hears mass. On that day, angels will guard the footsteps coming and going of whoever sees the body of Christ or who even is on his way devoutly to the church. This is drawing on Augustine's work in the city of God. These, these notions that, again, I, I, think, I think too vastly lost in our time, that uh, you know, the, the reason that mass was always conceived of as being primarily for the worship of God uh, is, is all connected to this same notion that, that man is, is destined for a communion with the triune God, this, this profound, you know, interpersonal communion with God. We enjoy the indwelling of the blessed Trinity in our souls. And that on earth, you know, the eye, our, our physical eyes can look on him in his, his sacramental presence. Uh, and so you have this constant preoccupation throughout the early church and, again, all the way to the, the medieval mind of looking upon, adoring our Lord uh, by, by looking upon him. And, uh, and that, again, is, is part of the reason we have the bells during the elevation. We have the elevation at all, you know, is that we don't see a lot of what's going on up there if the, if the priest's back, you know, is uh, is what we see most of the time, uh, and yet we have these these high points where you can just see enough, you know, the, where the the blessed sacrament is elevated, or it's or it's uh, you know turned and shown, you know, at points. Um, all of that is is again this preoccupation with adoring the Lord and how we can do that even in this life. Yeah, I try finding one of those. Uh... English churches that had a little, like a gate to whatever you would call it in front there. And I've heard about that before the veil, they come down a big curtain. Uh, on, that'd be cool to see. I wonder, wonder why the, I wish that would, that would be cool just to see. We don't even have altar, you know, rails. Uh, the altar rails used to have them or uh, just the, the altar, what would they call it? Not curtain, but altar 
finance, uh, linen uh, during communion. But yeah, could you imagine that a big drape coming down over that gate? Uh, like that'd be cool to see. No, uh, but yeah. Eric, yeah. I appreciate you, man. Uh, pitch uh, Traddy Vox real quick for everyone. See, uh, so they can understand more what it is, and if they you got anything else coming out. Sure. The the project generally uh, under His Excellency Bishop Athanasius Schneider, we're restoring um, a lot of catechisms that just haven't seen the light of day sometimes in many centuries. So we we have both. Uh, we've partnered with Sophia Institute Press to produce a hardback series. This is a 20 volume collection of the best of the best catechisms uh, issued over the last millennium in English. Uh, and so we are, I think it's, we mentioned, yes, 11, volume 11 just shipped. Uh, obviously many more are, are done already, but they, they came up with a great idea of, of making it like a subscription base, like the old encyclopedias would be. So, so folks can either, you know, you can, you can buy them individual volumes, find your favorite one. And of course there's Trent, any, any that you have heard of are likely present here. Uh, Trent, you, you, you know, Pius Latez, Aquinas, Canisius, Bella, I mean, all the, all the uh, excellent ones, but, um, but many more oftentimes that folks haven't heard of. And so, so this is, it's a 20 volume collection, the final volume, the 20th volume, uh, we were just, was just answering somebody's question about this the other day. Uh, volume 20 is a freestanding index. So it will cross-reference the full series so that essentially um, one, one can go through a, a, a ca many catechisms in one and see, you know, here, here are, you know, these, these doctrines, these teachings in these catechisms that take up, you know, the, the better part of the last thousand years in the church and from all times and places. And the continuity of, of the church's doctrine is remarkable uh, in these texts. And so, so that's what they are. There's a, there's a subscription where one comes out every three months uh, one volume comes out and ships to the door, uh, and that's that's stellar. And then, um, of course, there's the individual volumes. Folks find their favorite. So check it out. The links will be underneath under show notes. And this is not to say that I know that priests are are dumb like they were talking about in these uh, catechisms here. But get them for you, priests. If you're upset that hey, we don't uh, we we would like to make sure we're it's on us to help present to get these things. To the priests who don't have a lot of money, so we gotta buy. We have to buy them for the seminaries. You want your seminarians to be educated? Get these for the seminary in your area. Uh, so help help promote education for everyone. Get it for a Catholic school. Get it for yourself. Because if things go down, they stop letting you watch the internet or look on the internet. Or anything? Hey, at least you got these catechisms to help you get by to learn the know, learn, and spread the faith. So uh, it's a good thing to have in your person, anyways. Uh, right, Aaron. <laughs> Amen. No, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> anyway, thanks. Uh, thanks for your time, man. We'll do it again. We'll do another one. Uh, if anybody hasn't known, this is probably our fourth or fifth catechism book series or explanation we've done. And he's got, as he said, a lover out there. So we'll keep doing this for the next couple of years. And just as long as you guys keep pushing and uh, buying again for the uh, for the, uh, the education of everyone out there to spread the word. I mean, there's a reason why it exists. And thanks be to God that Aaron has found this stuff and Thought it was good uh, use was time to translate and promote and republish all these. Yes, yeah, so it's a it's a massive team undertaking for the last several years. So we certainly can't take credit for all of that, but it's it's been 
a, a huge blessing to be a part of this this project uh, along with others. But the Tradabox, like like nothing else, I, I feel it really shows that continuity aspect. That's one of the most remarkable things, and we hear that from folks all the time. Reading them is just wow. I can I can pull you know any one of these off the shelf, and I'm I'm literally jumping you know from century to century, from from continent to continent. And, and wouldn't you know it? They just they just all really <laughs> they really sound similar. So that's that's one of the coolest things just to see how how similar it is, but then how different in the times and ages what they're going after. But the main meat and potatoes, it's going to be the exact same thing. Which still repetition material studio arms. So the you know, got it. How you learn? <laughs> and seeing how it's taught. I mean, that's that's really the beauty of it, because every one of them has a different target audience in mind. You know, some are some are for kids, some are more illustrated. You know, we've got these these old woodcuts. Some are more for you know an educated audience. Some have gobs of footnotes. Some have fewer. You know, some have much more scriptural focus. Some have a much more liturgical focus. And then beyond that, we're we're getting this window into the local culture where any one of them was issued. I can say, oh, so volume six, I'm, I'm now I'm transported into you know, 13th century England or uh, 